Welcome to You Are Not Broken, the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Kasperson. All right, ladies, I'm so excited to have Dr. Boyles here today. She is an expert urogynecologist, fellowship trained in female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery with more than 15 years of clinical experience. She manages her successful group practice, publishes widely in her field, and creates national female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery quality standards, FPMRS for anybody who's in the know. (laughs) That's the abbreviation. For years, she has heard her patients regret not knowing more about their bladder function and wishing the information was easier to find outside of a doctor's office. Recognizing the need for great pelvic floor education in the real world, she's recently pivoted to create quality content for women that is easy to obtain through electronic resources. You can find her work at thewomensbladderdoctor.com and on Instagram at thewomensbladderdoctor and Facebook at thewomensbladderdoctor. I'm so excited that you're here. Thanks, Callie. I'm happy to be here. So tell us, what's a urogynecologist for people who don't know? Yeah, so that's a great question. So urogynecology is a pretty new field. It's been around since 2013. Most of the people that are urogynecologists are trained in obstetrics and gynecology and then do a fellowship. You can also do it through a urology tract. And they really focus on the female pelvis and all the things that can go wrong in the female pelvis. So lots of pelvic organ prolapse, urinary incontinence, postpartum injuries, so injuries after delivery. So yeah, so really focusing on the pelvis. Awesome. So important. I think for, you know, women being one in two people on the planet, there actually isn't that much knowledge and disseminated education on this. So I love what you're doing. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been, it's been fun. You know, it's interesting because so few people know about urogynecology And, you know, frequently my patients ask me why I would choose to do such a crazy field, you know, because I think I deal with a lot of things that people really wish they didn't have, but it's, you know, it's a place where you can make such a big difference in people's lives that it's really rewarding. Totally. People usually say that, like, you know, I'm, I'm getting ready to like do an exam. People are like, why'd you go into this? They always ask like right when they're getting into stirrups and I'm like, cause I hate eyeballs. Like I could not do like a foreign body and an eyeball to me. Like, Oh <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm the same way. I usually say I don't like sputum, but that's, you know, <clears throat> that's what we do. Yeah. I don't like phlegm either. Like things stuck in noses. Uh-uh, no way. So let's see, how do we know going? So lack of education everywhere. People don't get education on their own body parts. How do women know if they're normal anatomy wise? Let's talk about the vulva. So I don't think most people do know if they're normal, right? And and so the first thing, you know, before we kind of get into this is, you know, if you feel like you have a lump or an infection, then you just need to be seen. But a lot of times people just aren't sure if their parts look normal. And I, you know, I think there are a lot of reasons for that. I mean, you know, one is that our organs are more internal than external. So unlike boys, you just don't have as much exposure, right? When you're changing. So most people don't know what 
what other people look like. You know, over the last 10 to 20 years, women do a lot more grooming of their pubic hair, right? So about 70% of women remove all the pubic hair or at least part of the pubic hair. So, you know, in doing that, you become a little bit more aware of your anatomy and aware of asymmetries, right? One side doesn't always look exactly like the other. And there's kind of this stereotype in the media where, you know, women assume that they kind of should look like a Barbie doll, right? So hairless and have kind of indistinct genitalia. And that's not that's not true for a lot of people. So I think it's really hard for women to know if they're normal looking or not. Totally. I mean, I think if you're at all concerned, if you're not normal looking, see somebody who's an expert in vulvas, right? So either a urologist who specializes, a gynecologist who specializes, somebody who does know what they're looking at and looks at a bunch of them. I tell women all the time, like, hey, I've looked at so much now, I'll just put you on the bell curve and tell you where you are. And most of the time, people are completely normal. The majority is normal. And we're all different snowflakes, right? Like there's all variations and it's all normal. So I I like your snowflake term. I've never heard someone say that. I I recently heard someone say that there are as many appearances of the vulva as there are of the face, right? And I kind of like that too, right? I mean, there are just, there are so many variations on normal here. Yeah. And it's kind of like fingerprints, right? Like we all have different fingerprints and we don't go around trying to like, I wish I had Susie's fingerprint, right? right? Like, why are we trying to take one aspect of our body and make it so similar when really everything is normal? So let's talk about normal variations. So different lengths or sizes of the inner labia, that's normal, right? Yeah, that's definitely normal. So I I think one of the big you know, misconceptions is that the labia minora, so the inner lips, right, the ones that are closest to the middle, should be kind of tucked inside and not very prominent. And that is not true for lots and lots of women. I mean, sometimes they're longer, sometimes the middle aspect is longer. You know, for some women, they're pretty prominent. And none of that is considered to be abnormal unless they bother you in some way. Especially they say sometimes in thinner women, you might see those inner labia protrude more because they just don't have as much fat or adipose tissue of the external labia. Totally normal. Yeah. Don't need to change it. Yeah. If in, in my experience, if they're getting caught, so I can't ride a bike because my inner labia is getting caught or pinched, or sometimes if the inner labia is so long, it gets pinched as it gets pulled into the vagina with a tampon or with intercourse. Yeah. So it's causing a dysfunction that might be worth seeing somebody about. So I, I totally agree with that. So bike riders sometimes are bothered by their labia or, you know, sometimes with jeans, tight clothes, you'll notice that they bother you a little bit, but you know, it's one of those things where if they're not bothering you, even if they're long and protruding, you absolutely, that is not considered to be abnormal at all. And you're right. The labia majora, so the outer lips have fat in them and the inner ones don't. And so if you are really skinny, you know, the labia minora will be more prominent. And sometimes after a delivery, they can get torn. And so one side can, you know, kind of have a painful scar on it, or there can be a lot of, one side can be a lot bigger. I think what a lot of women don't understand is that the labia are actually sexual organs and have sexual sensation to them. So they're important. They're important bits to, you know, hang on to, to love, to accept and to play with as far as intimacy goes. Yeah, I I think that's really true. I mean, sometimes they're perhaps a little bit ignored, but there is a lot of sensation there. Right. And they're analogous to the scrotum. 
you know, just to illustrate how sensitive that tissue really can be and why if they're longer, they can be a little bit bothersome. Absolutely. Any other thoughts on what would make somebody abnormal or if they should see somebody? I think the other thing that women worry about a lot is kind of the opening of the vagina, right? The introitus and what a normal size for the opening is. You know, we focus a lot on wanting that opening to be pretty small and petite, but there really isn't, a, you know, kind of a magic size where if you were bigger than that size, it would consider to be abnormal. Most of the time, if the opening is a little bit big, that can be a sign that you need to work on your muscle function, right? And exercise those muscles to make the opening a little bit smaller. And I, I think the other thing that I would say is, you know, sometimes a, a small opening to the vagina or the introitus really results in painful sex, right? That's not always a great, a great thing to have. Yeah, I would say I see tons of pain from the opening being too small. Usually that tends to come in with perimenopause and menopause as the estrogen levels go down and that skin becomes less flexible. It loses its collagen and blood supply. So it's actually smaller is not better. There's a lot of dysfunction that comes from too small of an opening. I think that's true, right? And, And, you know, the other thing about a smaller opening is that, you know, your parts need to play together really well. And sometimes as men get older, their erections aren't as firm right? And so a small opening can be really difficult for intercourse. Good point. Well, let's talk about your main topic that you're really kind of taking off in as far as bladder and bladder leakage. Let's talk about the impact of incontinence on sexuality for women. Yeah. So that's a a huge topic. And I, I think it's probably not a surprise to anyone that it has negative effects. So, you know, one of the reasons that I like to focus on urinary incontinence is because it's really, it's such a huge quality of life issue for women. So in general, I think that people really want their pelvises to work, right? I mean, you want to be able to pee without any problems. You want to be able to poop without any problems. You want to be able to have sex without any problems. And when you're having to think about your pelvis too much, you know, it leads to a lot of bother and decreased quality of life for women. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of correlation in that when they study the women who have bladder leakage or incontinence, they are actually less sexually active people. Do you see that as true or do you see that as like a bias in the study? What do you think about that data? There's a good study that came out of England where they serially questioned women and they found that, you know, with urinary incontinence, they became less sexually active over time. Right. And so I think what happens, I think that as you leak more, I think you're less comfortable with your body. I think that there's a decrease in in body image that happens there. And then I think you're less likely to engage in sexual activity because of it. Right. And I think some of that is just very practical. I mean, you're worried about smelling, about not being attractive, even with old partners, right? I mean, I think sometimes with new partners, people are even more self-conscious, but even with old relationships, old comfortable relationships, it's a, it's a very, very uncomfortable issue for women. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the data on women talking about incontinence, even with their partners and sisters and friends is really very, very low. I mean, most women don't discuss it with anybody and that's changing a little bit, but still nobody really wants to talk about it. 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of shame wrapped up into incontinence. I, I, I mean, I joke, but leaking after having a baby, right? So incredibly common. Yeah. And I'm like, this is what they should use as far as like sex ed in the schools to like have kids not have sex till later is like babies can wreak havoc on the female pelvis. I mean, about a third of women will leak after they deliver, right? I mean, the numbers are huge. And so the fact that we don't talk about it is... It's pretty crazy. You know, I mean, if we all talked about it a little bit more, then you would get tips from your friends and it, it would just normalize it a lot more rather than really isolating women. Totally. I, some of my happiest moments is when, you know, I have a relationship with a patient and they get better in either their incontinence or their sexual function, or maybe they started vaginal estrogen for some menopause dryness, then they go out and they're advocates for yeah. women, right? Like they go and they tell all their friends and they're, it's like, it's like this big secret that they discovered. It's just so fun to watch. Yeah. No, I totally, I totally agree with that. Yeah. I get that a lot with bladder Botox, right? Do you want to talk about bladder Botox a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So I, I agree with that. So I, I think, you know, one of the misconceptions is that a lot of women really believe that, you know, leaking is normal and there's nothing that you can do for it. And that's not true, right? There are so many different treatments for urinary incontinence. You know, maybe we should start by talking about the different types of leaking. Perfect. Okay. Let's do that. All right. So in women, there are two big types of leaking. So there's stress incontinence and urgency urinary incontinence. And stress incontinence happens when you leak with coughing, sneezing, exercise, when you're there's a little pressure that's pushing the urine out. And urgency incontinence, you feel an urge, maybe you're going to the bathroom super frequently, and you just can't quite get there in time. And that usually happens because your bladder muscle is spasming and pushing out the urine. And then for some women, you can have mixed incontinence, which is both of them. The post-baby one tends to be the stress incontinence one, right? Yeah, it tends to be the stress incontinence. So although, you know, 10% of women will leak with stress incontinence their entire life, right? Even if they've never had any children. So we, we make a big deal about the different types of leaking because we treat them a little bit differently. And so it's important to know what type of leaking that you have. The urgency incontinence and the mixed incontinence are actually associated with worse quality of life because it tends to be bigger leaks. They tend to feel more random. You tend to feel more out of control. So that tends to be kind of a, a bigger problem. Whereas stress incontinence is just a little bit more predictable and you can change your behaviors a little bit to minimize it until it gets pretty significant. So Botox is a treatment that we use for overactive bladder and you actually inject the Botox into the bladder. It's one of my favorite treatments. We were talking about this a little bit earlier because it's a local treatment, right? You're treating the, the bladder. And so there aren't a lot of other side effects. When we give people medications, there can be systemic side effects. So side effects that happen in your whole body. So you feel dry, you get constipated. And the, you know, the great thing about bladder Botox is that those things really don't happen. And it is super effective. Oh yeah. Women love it. The, I get so many people now and they're like, my friend at bladder Botox, I'd like it. And then we really have to talk about how stress incontinence doesn't get better right. from Botox, right? Because right. stress incontinence is a pelvic floor weakness, right. whereas Botox relaxes kind of a, a spastic bladder muscle. So two yep. separate things. 
So I think that leaking from sitting to standing, I see it all the time. I think it's super <laughs> tricky to treat. I, you know, there's a debate amongst urologists and urogynecologists, like, is that stress? Is that urge? What is it? I Sitting to standing leakage is a tricky one for me. Yeah. So I think that is the tricky one. Sometimes I think that's actually because you have a little bit of a cystocele, right? So your bladder comes down a little bit and you're just not draining all the way. So you have some residual urine there. But I, I, I totally agree with you. I think that that is a really difficult thing to fix. And a lot of times, you know, the thing that I think works the best is if you do double voiding, right, where you stand up from going to the bathroom and then sit right back down and then empty out just that last little bit. Nice. I, I get my pelvic floor physical therapist involved on in that one because I'm like engaging the core, lifting the pelvic floor before you sit up. I think so many people kind of push out of their abdomen, which then increases pressure on the pelvic floor, either yeah. getting out of bed or sitting to standing. That leakage to me is tricky if we don't address the core and the pelvic floor. I think you're right. And it depends on the mechanics of how you're standing up too, right? Because mm -hmm. you can absolutely be pushing rather than kind of protecting your pelvic floor. And those are really hard things. I mean, those are habits, right? You've always kind of stood up the same way. Those are hard things to relearn without physical therapy. But I mean, you're totally right. Like in everything that we do, physical therapy is such a, an important component. Totally. So what do, what do you, how do you work it up or what do you do if a woman comes to you and she says she's leaking urine during sexual intercourse? That's a great question. So urinary incontinence in general decreases sexual activity, right? It's not just leaking during intercourse. So if you're just having stress incontinence during tennis, I mean, those women are, are still shown to have decreased levels of sexual activity. You know, it's, it's really uncommon for women to come to the clinic. And I don't know if you see this, but it's really uncommon for people to admit that they leak during intercourse. So it's not uncommon that it happens. I mean, it happens to about 50% of women who have incontinence, but it is something that people really don't like to talk about. So, you know, the first thing is it depends on when they're leaking, right? So if you're leaking during intercourse, if you're leaking at the time of penetration, that's more likely to be stress incontinence. And if you're leaking at the time of orgasm, that's more likely to be overactive bladder or urgency incontinence and bladder spasm. So a lot of it has to do with kind of history taking, figuring out when they're leaking, I like to try to figure it out without doing a lot of testing. But sometimes if I can't really figure out what's going on with them and what type of leaking is driving it, then I will do urodynamics to evaluate it a little bit further, right? Which is the test that we do to evaluate leaking. Totally. I, I kind of, and I think I agree with you. They don't usually come in saying I leak with sex. It's kind of, I'm here for bladder uh -huh. leakage. And, and so I'll ask them, I'll say, do you leak with sex? Because to me, if you are leaking with sex, which especially if it's stress incontinence, so if, typically if you're laying down, right. And you're leaking to me, that's kind of high, a high volume of leakage. And I'm like, this is absolutely worth treating. Yeah. And I, and I might rush to intervention a little bit more than somebody who's like, yeah, I, you know, I leak once a week and it's only on the trampoline. I'm not going to be as aggressive of treating that as like, this is influencing, this is really influencing quality of life in a major way. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, even leaking just once during intercourse can just be so devastating for people, right? And then you start avoiding intimacy and that can have a lot of, you know, long-term relationship issues. And I think, you know, for a lot of women, you start 
you, you kind of develop these coping behaviors or avoiding behaviors without really thinking about it. And, and so it's, you know, kind of slow and insidious and really impacts your quality of life without your really thinking about it. Totally. And, and simple things, you know, if you just have minor leakage or it's rare, make sure your bladder is empty, maybe watch out for any sort of bladder irritants, you know, caffeine, alcohol, anything that might stimulate your bladder prior to intercourse. So some simple behavioral changes, but certainly if it's major, I'd say, you know, it's not normal. It's, and it certainly can be treated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for a lot of women, once that happens, that's kind of what really drives them to seek care, right? I mean, they may not tell you that that's why they're there unless you are asking very direct personal questions, but that frequently is kind of what tips them over into saying, okay, this is just not tolerable anymore. Mm -hmm. Let's talk, before we wrap up, let's talk about some postpartum injuries. You were talking about, you know, injuries to the vagina and the labia. What kind of things do you see that might be more common than we realize? Cause we just don't get the, we don't get taught like what to expect after you have a baby. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is definitely true. And I think, you know, it, it's, it's hard to prepare for it. So there are a lot of, you know, tears that can happen. Most women, especially after their, their first delivery will have a little tear and we grade those tears from one to four and four is when you tear all the way into the anus. And those are pretty unusual. A grade three tear is tearing into the anal sphincter as well. And then one and two are the tears that we see most frequently, but even with a more minor tear, you know, that it's just such a delicate area and there's so much swelling that happens at the time of delivery that it, it can be really difficult to empty your bladder and to have bowel movements for the first couple of weeks after delivery. And so we see that pretty commonly. You know, the other thing that happens is that after delivery, it's pretty common for your pelvic floor muscles to kind of go on vacation for a little bit. There's kind of a temporary nerve damage that happens there. And so those muscles aren't very responsive for a while. And so you can have quite a bit of leaking afterwards that resolves with time as those muscles slowly regain function. What time would you say like, okay, it's been, it's been going on long enough. Now it's time to see a pelvic floor physical therapist. You know, that's kind of a big debate in the, you know, kind of the OB urogyne world. You know, in other countries, like in France, everybody sees a pelvic physical therapist after they deliver. And so, and that's something that is just not standard here. So I think for most people, I think seeing PT is a great idea. Usually you should wait for at least six weeks after delivery. And you need to make sure that those incisions or those tears are well healed, right? That's the, that's the other part. So once you're kind of cleared, then I think seeing a PT is always helpful. Even if you're not having a, you know, a lot of leaking, you know, sometimes just figuring out the ergonomics of moving and carrying your baby and carrying the carrier, all of those things can be really helped by PT. Awesome. Yep. And there are totally well-trained people to help, right? And it's and it's way more common than people think. And so yeah. there is help available. Well, I th- so I think that's the big thing is, you know, asking for help. And I think, 
I don't know, this may be a little bit of a soapbox, but you know, social media makes everybody think that once they deliver, it's going to be perfect and they're going to have this beautiful baby. And that may be true, but it's not telling you what else is going on. Right. And so I think sometimes those perfect images of other people's postpartum course can make it feel even worse if you're having problems, right? Where you're not seeing, I mean, you're just seeing the tip of the iceberg. You're not seeing what else is, is going on there. So, you know, sometimes when I see postpartum patients, I'll ask them to take an Instagram break, right? Just so that, just to help them kind of heal a little bit without comparing themselves to other people. That's really good advice. They're lucky to have you. Oh, we're so hard on ourselves, right? Oh, so hard. And that's the last thing we need, right? To have, to have our own back and to feel supported is just mm-hmm. amazing. Anything else you want women to know about their bladder or leakage or postpartum or any, any other tips? You know, the thing that I would say about leaking is that leaking is super, super common. And I think it's important for women to know that it happens to everyone. It happens to athletes. It happens to young women. It doesn't just happen to older women. I mean, one of the things that really bothers me about kind of the education that's out there on leaking is it really focuses on, you know, kind of a fit 65-year-old woman. And it can happen to anyone. And if it bothers you, then you should seek help. And that help doesn't necessarily have to be anything aggressive. I mean, there are a lot of behavioral changes and exercises and physical therapy that you can do to make it better. So definitely ask for help. Love it. So what what advice would you have if, if a woman goes to their doctor or their nurse practitioner and they bring it up and they kind of feel like they got blown off or it didn't get addressed? What to do? Yeah. So I would say that unfortunately that is super common, right? So, you know, the, the data tells us that about 40% of women who are 30 to 50 leak urine of those women, about a quarter of them will bring it up to their practitioner and only half of those women then actually get care. And I think sometimes that is because, you know, the practitioner isn't really sure what to do. So then I I think, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I felt that this education was so important and really needed to be out there. But, you know, if you're not getting the help you need, you should ask your friends and, and look around. Sometimes navigating healthcare can be really difficult, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And and don't give up or, you know, the, the provider maybe didn't understand how it's affecting your life. Right. So just kind of being clear on the story and, and persisting. Yeah. And the other thing that I would say too, is, you know, because incontinence is a little bit shameful, a lot of times people don't bring it up and it's kind of the last thing that they say when the practitioner is kind of wrapping up and and leaving the room. So, you know, be aggressive, write your questions down, present it to the practitioner, right? When you first get there, so they know what you're there for. So you're really advocating for yourself. Awesome. It's good to hear it. I think it's so good to hear from doctors that we're like, speak up. Let yeah. us know how important it is. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I'll even have patients, you know, kind of email me their questions before they come in. Right. And they'll say, you know, I really want you to address these things when I'm there. And that's, you know, always helpful because then I know what they want. And, and if I need to do any additional research, I can definitely, you know, do that before they get there. I think it's hard for people to remember sometimes that it's your health care. Yep. 
Awesome. And, you know, I learned this in medical school of, you know, nobody is going to care about your education more than you and nobody's going to care about your health care more than you. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, in, in some ways the system's a little bit broken, right? I mean, we don't have as much time with patients as we want, but I think most physicians really enjoy connecting with their patients, right? And so, you know, if people can be a little bit proactive and, and help you do that, then that's great. I think the other thing that's so great is, you know, you providing the the bladder on the women's bladder doctor platforms, people can get educated before they go into a doctor. So they're like, I have leakage. I've researched it. I think it's overactive bladder. I think Botox might be awesome for me. I mean, the doctors love that when you're like, oh, look, she already has this knowledge. We can start from a much higher place than starting kind of from basics. So we're basically wanting to give these tools to empower women before they even see the doctor. Yeah. I think that's definitely true. And and sometimes, you know, we have to redirect or educate, right? Because maybe what you thought was the best thing for you, like your story before about Botox for stress incontinence. I mean, sometimes it's what you think you need isn't quite right, right? But that's part of the education process too. You know, sometimes there's this perception that doctors don't like it when their patients are Googling and looking things up. But I, I don't really think that's true. I mean, I think that's the world we all live in right now. Yeah. And luckily, I think there's more and more good resources out there, you know, like hopefully this podcast and then the work you're doing so that when people are searching for answers, they're finding high quality stuff. Right. No, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us today. This is going to be great. I think it's going to be super helpful for a lot of people. Yeah. Thanks so much. And thanks so much for doing this work. Right. I think it's so important for all of us. Totally. I appreciate it.